Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Me Undies. I have lots of kinds of underwear in my drawer, but I have to tell you that my favorite kind of underwear is Me Undies. I love them so much, and Colette, my wife, is so jealous of them that when Mother's Day came up this year and she wanted a variety of different gifts for Mother's Day, one of the things she wanted was some Me Undies underwear and also their lounge pants. I have a pair of Me Undies lounge pants, and Colette deserves a super soft, super comfortable pair of Me Undies lounge pants. There are styles for everyone from all black classics to fun, expressive prints, and they come in sizes extra small to 4XL, guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody. And like I said already, they have unmatched comfort. Their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater. It's also breathable, stretchy, and oh so comfy, making it ideal for all day wear. MeUndies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash HPST. That's MeUndies.com slash HPST for 20% off plus free shipping. MeUndies. Comfort from the outside in. Chapter 8. The Death Day Party. October arrived, spreading a damp chill over the grounds and into the castle. Madame Pomfrey, the nurse, was kept busy by a sudden spate of colds among the staff and students. Her pepper-up potion worked instantly, although it left the drinker smoking at the ears for several hours afterward. I'm Matt Potts. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Vanessa, this week's episode is on the theme of frustration, and you have a story about frustration for us. I do. I would say that frustration is the kryptonite emotion for me. Like anger is something that I can like rein in and sadness is something I can rein in. Fear, something I can rein in. Frustration, like the quickest way to get me to cry is if I drop a pencil and can't find it. I'm like, it physically has to be nearby. Where is it? And like, that will make me cry within 10 seconds. I, for some reason, I have no coping skills when it comes to frustration. And this was evident very young for me. So in the first grade, part of my morning routine was that I would go into my parents' bathroom and my mom would use a Johnson & Johnson spray called No More Tangles because I have very curly hair that was always tangled. And she would spray it and brush my hair and braid my hair. And for some reason... There were months where as soon as I sat down on the edge of the tub for my mom to braid my hair, I would say, okay, mom, explain this to me again. Why does Alaska belong to the United States and not to Canada? And my mom would attempt to explain this to me. She'd be like, well, the government owns it. And I'd be like, so does President Reagan own Alaska? And she'd be like, no, the federal government does. It doesn't matter who the president is. And it just made no sense to me. And so every morning I would run off with very beautifully braided hair, crying in frustration. And it would absolutely ruin my morning every morning. I'd go down and eat breakfast, 
grumpy because I could not understand why Alaska belonged to the United States. And like the only thing that would make me feel better was getting distracted. And then the following morning, it would start again. I'd sit on the edge of the tub. And for whatever reason, that would remind me of Alaska and how I didn't understand how it belonged to the United States. In telling the story, I'm realizing that this was probably also a very frustrating experience for my mother. (laughs) (laughs) But there's something to me about the fact that like, you feel as though it is something you should be able to do and you can't. And like, that is frustration. You are like 100% sure that it is comprehensible that Alaska belongs to the United States or that the pencil is within three feet of you and yet it is out of reach. And that is just a gap that like, when I can't close those gaps, I completely break down. Vanessa, that's such an interesting story and so illuminative of what I think frustration is really about. I mean, your story like just escorts us directly into etymology corner. Uh, (gasps) It really, really does because frustration comes from a Latin word, which means error, but it's a particular kind of error. It's like an error made in vanity, right? Like that you believe something of yourself or of the world that is not true. And that word is actually related to the root word for fraud. So there's a root of like deception, of being deceived in frustration. And like, there's a sense of like, I believe that things would be this way. I believed I could complete this task. I believe that Alaska belonged to Canada, (laughs) right? But I have been proven wrong. My beliefs have been proven wrong. And that kind of cognitive dissonance is part of frustration. There's like a deception at the root of it. And the deception is not like what someone else tells us well, I guess in the case of your mom, your story with your mom, it is about what someone else tells us. But, right, like it has to do with us, the world not meeting our standard for the way things ought to be. Well, I mean, my mom was just the messenger. Let's not kill her in the process. <laughs> to be clear, this was 33 years ago, and I still don't totally understand why Alaska, quote unquote, belongs to the United States. So I've just given up. The short answer is it doesn't belong to Canada either. colonialism (laughs) right no like right i'm just saying that like i've only gotten further confused yeah sure fair enough fair enough okay matt it is your moment of frustration where their world is not as it ought to be (laughs) can i say that you're actually explaining this to me very well because these chapters are not meant to be 30 seconds long no, these are longer meant chapters. To be so, 20 chap- minutes. So it is an exercise in frustration necessarily because I'm trying to compress a thing that does not belong in a 30 seconds recap into 30 seconds. Yes. I also understand that that's the exercise and I'm ready. I'm not ready. I am willing. On your mark, get set, go. Okay, so everyone's sick at the beginning of the chapter and it's rainy and they're having Quidditch practice and Harry is coming back from Quidditch practice and his boots are muddy and he runs into Nick and Nick is disappointed because he got denied from the headless hunt and then Filch is coming around the corner and, and Filch catches them even though Nick tries to save them and, and Harry gets almost punished and finds out that that uh, that Filch is, oh my gosh, 10 seconds, Filch, they go to the death day party and, <laughs> and Nick is really helpful and then uh, Miss Norris is hanging and petrified and is writing on the wall and Drake was still the jerk. Okay, just count me in because I want I have something to say. Just immediately okay. count me in. Okay, I'm gonna immediately count you in, Vanessa. Three, two, one, go. Squib. Filch is a squib. And Harry is sitting there and he's like, oh my God, I didn't even know that was a thing. And he's going through this pamphlet. And then it turns out that Nick gets Harry out of trouble and he talks to Nick. And Nick is like, will you come to the death day party? And then will you sort of talk to this guy and make sure that I can get into the headless hunt? And they go and there's rotting food everywhere. And Hermione is like, oh my God, don't make me talk to Myrtle. And it's like kind of gross there. And we see the bloody Baron for the first time. And then they are trying to go to the feast and they get caught by Snape. No, that's the next chapter. They um, hear the thing and there's a writing on the wall with Snorris. <sighs> are we are we just like taunting me by like, no. I'm, oh, by the way, I'm just going to I'm just going to summarize two chapters in 30 seconds while I'm at it. Can we start with a character comparison between Nick and Filch? Is that OK? That sounds great. Because I feel like Nick and Filch at the opening of this chapter are two case studies in frustration and how we might react to frustration. Mm. I mean, frustration is a universal human response and emotion, right? And because, as your story illustrated, Vanessa, like all of us encounter a world that does not accommodate itself to our desires and wants or even our beliefs, right? And so that's just the, that's just what it means to be in the world. What's important, as we keep talking about, I think, in our conversations, Vanessa, is like what we do with those 
affective responses, what we do when we feel these things. And Nick and Filch have really similar instances of frustration and are responding in different ways, right? So Nick gets this letter from the Headless Hunt, and he's obviously very frustrated, right? But in that moment of frustration, he's able to recognize that Harry is in some distress, right? He asks if he can help. And then, given the opportunity to help, he does help. He sends Peeves to interrupt the situation. And he also asks Harry to do something Harry doesn't love, to come to the death day party. But I feel like it's it's because he wants this relationship. Like, he just wants Harry there, even if it's a little bit opportunist, because he's hoping Harry will put in a good word for him with the Headless Hunt. But so, so we have Nick super frustrated, but it doesn't keep him from recognizing others' needs and even responding to his frustration by reaching out to others, building relationship with others, right? Now... Filch's exclusion or rejection is more longstanding, and I don't want to like necessarily equate them, but obviously Filch is without any recognizable magical ability, and his response is to become really cruel and mean, right? To try to solve it on his own, to get this kind of correspondence course, and try to figure out if he can get more magical ability, and to to take it out on folks who, who do have ability, right? Both of them are really frustrated. Both of them are experiencing similar sorts of frustration, because others have excluded them into communities which they believe they ought to belong to. But their reactions, their behavior towards Harry in particular, is just completely opposite. And illuminates, like, again, the question we keep returning to, which is how do we respond to the feelings that arise within us? Yeah. I mean, I'm going to offer what might be a hot take. I, to be clear, like, Nick shouldn't be on the headless hunt. Oh, no. Right? Like, I understand why he is like, look, it is right, right, like an eighth of an inch of sinew, right? It is like nearly nothing that separates me from the headless hunt. And nearly yet, headless, yeah. Technically, he cannot play head polo, right? And I actually find the letter from the headless hunt to be a very well-constructed rejection letter. Right. Of like, you can't because you cannot participate in these key activities. Now, I agree with you that the headless hunt at his death day party, they seem like a bunch of jerk butts. And like, I don't want (laughs) Nick to hang out with a bunch of jerk butts. And I think that the headless hunt absolutely should be thinking about ways to be more inclusive and like shouldn't necessarily make the fact that you can't participate in each and every one of their activities what allows you to get in or not. But I think that he seems to be doing this thing that so many of us do, which is like not changing his tactic. He just keeps reapplying and keeps getting rejected. Mm. And I would imagine that this is frustrating Mm. on both ends, right? Like, I don't know if Nick could say, what if we created a new position? And like one of the things that we did was tip our heads off our bodies. And I was the fun final act. Like I want him to propose a solution to his frustration rather than just like keep hitting the same bruise over and over again. Am I victim blaming? I just feel like he's participating in his own frustration. I don't think you're victim blaming. No, I think that's probably not the language I would want to use about nearly headless Nick in this situation. (laughs) I think that, I think, so I think you're right. I think first of all, I mean, it's so interesting just to read this as a person from this side of the Atlantic, uh, like experiencing American culture and trying to like interpret what what these characters mean from British and UK culture, because it seems to me the headless hunt represents a certain kind of upper class, whatever in Britain. But to me, they just read as bros, right? They just read <laughs> as like, right? Like they just come in, they own the joint. They think they deserve everyone's attention. And for some reason, everybody gives them their attention, right? It's just very irritating. And I, Nick seems like a very kind person or kind ghost, I guess. I don't want him as part of this group. So I'm, I'm okay with him being rejected. And I think you're right. I also think not only should he not want to be with those folks because they're not his kind of folks, but also like he can't play head polo. Like he can't, obviously their stick, the headless hunt's shtick is to like do stuff with their heads and make the other ghosts laugh, <laughs> right? Right. What I think, I think the way Nick should respond to his frustration, I think you're right. I think he should stop trying to get into the headless hunt. But I think it's already doing what he should do to respond to that frustration because it seems like he's lonely and he's reaching out to the headless hunt because he wants community. And this is what I mean. Like having been rejected or excluded from one type of community, what he's doing is reaching out to others and God bless the Gryffindors. Harry and Hermione and Ron in particular for like being, yeah, okay, yeah, you want some community? We'll be community with you. He's thrown a party. He invites all the ghosts from all over the, the world to come to his party and they're coming, 
right? He's still preoccupied with being rejected, but Harry shows up and they wander near the rotten food. Like they do all the things. And, and so I think that has to be the way to react to this frustration. You can't change the Headless Hunt's decision or the fact that he is not fully decapitated. What he can do is like look for community elsewhere. And he does. And he gets a little bit, right? And that's, that's actually kind of a heartwarming part of this chapter, I think. Yeah, it also just gets to the heart of these questions about inclusiveness and boundaries, right? Because also, like, I absolutely think the Headless Hunt should be wondering about what to do with people like Nick, right? Because Nick is only not headless because he wasn't given a painless execution, right? Like, it's actually a trauma that has gotten him to this place. And, like, what we don't want is to put the onus on individuals who aren't welcome into certain communities. Yeah, it seems like a lot of what the headless hunt does depends upon your head not being attached to to your body, right? And so (laughs) they would have to come up with some different things for him. But I think that's okay. I mean, maybe we should do an episode on inclusion at some point. But, like, I think the real paradox and difficulty of inclusion is it's obviously a virtue, obviously a value that we should strive for. But inclusion assumes difference. You don't have to include that which is already part, right? Inclusion means recognizing difference and bringing the different into your community in a way that does not obscure that difference, right? Preserving the difference in order to honor the the differences that people want to hold on to, but also widening the bounds of the community such that others can be pulled into it But that's also a dangerous thing because when you do that, you also run the risk of erasing the difference or covering over the identities of people who want to be included in your community, right? And so what's necessary in this case is for the headless hunt to, as you were suggesting before, to rethink, okay, here we have a person who's nearly headless, who has an eighth of an inch of sinew. He can't play head polo. What else can he do? How could he be part, right? We've been talking about exclusion. I mean, the the figure of Myrtle in this chapter, we didn't really cover it so well in our 30-second recaps. You did a little bit. But Myrtle is just such a really sad character. I feel so bad for Myrtle because it seems like she she has this, what we will learn later in this book, is this traumatic death, right? It doesn't seem like she is well-received by either the ghost community or the Hogwarts student community. Like, Nick seems relatively beloved of, of Gryffindors, right? And... The fat friar seems relatively happy, seems relatively beloved of the other ghosts and other community members. But Myrtle just seems like still on the outs. Myrtle seems excluded and still hurt by it. And it's and it's still actively happening in this chapter, right? Like Hermione, who is as nice as anybody could be at Hogwarts, does not want to engage with her. And Peeves punches the bruise, to use your metaphor, from earlier in our conversation, right? Like, I just feel bad for Myrtle. Like, there's something more than frustration going on here. This is getting into, like, sort of, I don't know, I don't even know what language to use about it, but the the levels of exclusion here and that they perpetuate beyond death and are continuing for generation upon generation of students is really kind of sad. Not kind of sad, it's just sad. It's so sad. And I mean, I'm really glad that you brought her up. And I agree with you. Maybe she's helpful in us understanding frustration insofar as, like, I think that she exists outside of frustration, right? I think that her situation is about trauma begetting trauma and that like trauma can stunt us emotionally in some yeah. ways. And and that as much as people might want to help you, yeah. if you're unpleasant to be around, unfortunately, it is harder for people to want to help you. Yeah. And like, that is not fair, right? Like, yeah. That's actually maybe really illuminating about the distinction I was trying to draw between Nick and Filch from earlier, right? Because... Nick has been excluded, but I think we can all acknowledge it is, it's kind of a relatively trivial exclusion, right? He really wants to be in the Headless Hunt, but he has a community. He has the Gryffindors, and he knows these kids like him. Even Harry Potter, the most famous wizard in the world, likes him, right? Filch has been suffering with, like, being a squib for who knows how long, right? And right. has felt excluded for who knows how long and has probably been, you know, ridiculed and frustrated for generations of Hogwarts students, So he's maybe more like Myrtle in this case, because he has been in this place where he's been routinely and repetitively excluded. He doesn't trust folks. Why would he trust folks to help him or support him? And so maybe it's reasonable, not excusable, but reasonable that his responses would be through meanness, through distance, through assuming bad intention of others. It just maybe makes sense and it makes him harder to help and support, right? Which becomes really acute at the end of this chapter and in the next chapter, 
Because the one creature who does offer him support, Norris, is the one who is victimized at the end of this chapter. And I think that the book sets us up to empathize with Filch, right? It was just recently that we read about how resentful Ron is about having to clean the trophies with nothing but elbow grease, right? That like he isn't allowed to use magic and that is like exhausting and horrible for him. And then in this chapter, Filch is having to clean up after muddy students with no magic. With no magic. yeah. I don't understand it. Why doesn't Dumbledore like bewitch a broom for him or something? The fact that there is so much magic in this castle that literally the suits of armor can fight in the Battle of Hogwarts. But Filch, the janitor, the person who like is constantly cleaning up after these kids, can't get any magical help. It feels just so degrading and insulting. And so Harry yeah. is like, it's muddy out. What am I supposed to do? Well, there should be a mud room where you take off your wellies or whatever. Like yeah. there actually are structural things that could be done so that Harry yeah. Potter is not dragging mud through the house so that the one non-magical creature in the whole building has to clean up after him. Yeah. And it also just kind of signals we've been talking about inclusion and exclusion, like how much of actually you could see. I could see folks like Dumbledore or the other staff of Hogwarts being like, oh, pat ourselves on the back. Isn't it nice of us that we continue to include Filch in our community? But what they're not doing is actually imagining what it would be like to be a person who did not have magical ability in their community, which is what full inclusion would be. It's not just saying, yeah, you could be part of this, even though it's a lot going to be a lot harder for you. And I'm not I'm going to ignore how hard it is for you. It's also like, oh, you can be a part of this. How do I change the way things are done so you can feel fully a part of it, right? Like give you a magical broom or g- give you access to some tools that makes your life less hard. It makes me also wonder, though, maybe about McGonagall, maybe the reason, since all the staff, I'm sure, knows that Filch is a squib. Like, I wonder if that is why this particular detention was given to to Ron, right? Like, you can't just go down there and then magically clean all the trophies while Filch is laboring and putting elbow grease in, right? Like, this is, part of it is like an exercise in recognizing privilege and power and all this. I don't know, maybe that's giving too much credit to McGonagall, but... No, I I would love to imagine that for McGonagall. And I guess I just think that this this Filch moment actually speaks to the risk of bad inclusion, that sometimes maybe exclusion is preferable than bad inclusion or right. Like certainly better than like tokenizing inclusion because a janitor at a muggle school has a broom closet and like has signs that are like, Oh, it's wet. And like kids understand how hard it is to clean because it's part of their chores to clean. But like, there's just such absent mindedness and such lack of infrastructure at this school because everybody is magical that filch is just fighting this huge uphill battle and i just i hate that for him and like inclusion is so important but it has to be done well where it isn't like at every moment just a point of continued frustration that they are existing in a community that is not set up for them yeah we started with this idea of like frustration about about belonging. Yeah. Like, if your desire is to belong, that's a particularly acute kind of frustration. It's not just like my pencil won't sharpen right. It's not just that I can't figure out how to ride this unicycle. It's it's <laughs> the community that I feel like I need to belong to or who belong to me or something is excluding me. That's a particular and a particularly painful and acute type of frustration, which comes up in this chapter again and again. It's Nick. It's Filch. It's Myrtle. Right. And it's also part of the overarching theme of this book, right? Mudbloods beware, right? Like this is, it is about frustrated belonging. It is about drawing lines around community. It makes sense that our conversation about where frustration is happening is happening around community building in this chapter, I think. Oh, absolutely. Especially given to your point, the way that the chapter ends, right? Yeah. That it is about like this sort of original sin of Slytherin setting the standard of, I want to only teach purebloods, yeah. right? Which we in the United States, and I know in Britain as well, and all over the world, right? We These sins follow us forever, these profound exclusions and, and dehumanizations, right? Like, This is still in the bowels of the school, this wizard supremacy, and it is still being written on the wall. 
And like, it is always the vulnerable who are going to get their butts kicked first when these chickens come home to roost, right? Yeah. Your description of that is really great because I think there is an artfulness that I hadn't recognized before in this book in having the the original sin of Slytherin actually like living in the walls. Like actually, like it's almost like it's built into the structure itself. Like the, right. you know what I mean? Like that, that, that totally. This, it's a, it's a metaphor for like structural oppression, right? Like the, the building itself inside the walls is this original sin of wizarding supremacy or pure blood supremacy or whatever. And that there's something about what the book wants to say about how this operates and structures community in the school down to like the house elves who we meet for the first time to characters like Filch. It's actually in the structure, in the building itself, and that it almost has to live there. Like, it can't live anywhere else. It has to live in the walls, in the plumbing, in the edifice itself. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app, and when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the borough. Download the Redfin app to get started. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Me Undies. I have lots of kinds of underwear in my drawer, but I have to tell you that my favorite kind of underwear is Me Undies. I love them so much, and Colette, my wife, is so jealous of them that when Mother's Day came up this year and she wanted a variety of different gifts for Mother's Day, one of the things she wanted was some Me Undies underwear and also their lounge pants. I have a pair of Me Undies lounge pants, and Colette deserves a super soft, super comfortable pair of Me Undies lounge pants. There are styles for everyone from all black classics to fun, expressive prints, and they come in sizes extra small to 4XL, guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody. And like I said already, they have unmatched comfort. Their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater. It's also breathable, stretchy, and oh so comfy, making it ideal for all day wear. MeUndies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash HPST. That's MeUndies.com slash HPST for 20% off plus free shipping. MeUndies. Comfort from the outside in. Matt, can I tell you the moment that I related hardest <laughs> with a moment of frustration? Sure. Yes. Harry, current Harry, Halloween Harry, is frustrated at previous Harry for agreeing to go to this death day party. He's <laughs> like, damn it, week ago, Harry, why did you think this was a good idea? And then has to go to the party. And like, that is a frustration that I feel like all of us live. And it's such an interesting frustration because past you didn't make a bad choice, right? Like Harry made a decision to connect with Nick and like this is going to be a lifelong relationship that he has with these ghosts or lifelong memories or he he now understands ghosts better than any other student at Hogwarts, most likely, because he's actually attended a death day party. But in the moment where he's like hungry and is like, I could be eating pumpkin bread and instead I'm in this room with rotting food, he's just like, Ugh. And so 
yeah, that's just a moment of frustration that I find myself in all the time. When I agreed to a meeting because the person was right in front of me and seemed really sweet, and then it's a day of nine hours of meetings, and I'm like, why did I do this to myself? Yeah. But then the person ends up being great. You know, it's just like such a cycle of yeah. nonsense. I mean, speaking as an introvert, there are very few social interactions I have where I don't have that feeling beforehand. But what I've also learned is just like, oh, this is just a feeling I have before social interactions because the thing I agree to actually is what I want most. Yeah. This is normal for me because I find social interaction taxing in certain ways. Like this is normal for me to have this feeling and I will go have the meeting and I will enjoy it and afterwards be grateful that I did it. So I liken it to like the the five minutes before I go for a run. Of course, (laughs) in those five minutes, I don't want to run. But up to like just before those five minutes and then while running and after running, I'm glad I went for a run. But there's always that five minutes when I'm like, uh, it would be much better to take a nap. (laughs) So Matt, We've already talked about literal, physical, structural frustration, but there are other kinds of structural frustration, right? Buildings frustrating us. Mm-hmm. But, oh my God, everyone is so annoyed that the Slytherins have better brooms. Mm-hmm. And it is very frustrating when you are just as good at something as somebody else, but they just have more money than you. And like, that is the only difference between you and them. And yet it is a difference that makes a difference. It's a difference that matters, right? It is a difference that matters, but I think it's even more egregious in this case than you described, because I'm not sure that the Slytherins on their own are as good as the Gryffindors. Right. I think they might even be less good at Quidditch than the Gryffindors, but the extra money is going to make them superior, is intended to make them superior. Yeah. Yeah. And like, if if we go back to our original you know, definition of frustration that you taught us in etymology corner, right? That it's like the world is not acting the way that it should. Like the talented team that trains harder should be the team that wins. And instead this like dumb thing of like wealth because of, you know, wizard supremacy is actually what ends up making a team better. Yeah. And that is, it is like frustrating enough to throw a temper tantrum over. I mean, maybe that's why, you know, I remember listening to Malcolm Gladwell once talk about how he never likes rooting for underdogs. He likes to root for the, because it just makes more sense to him in the world if the better team wins. Like, the better team ought to win. They deserve to win because they're better, right? I think maybe the reason, like, so many of us do root for underdogs is because we, because we want the narrative to be that those who are less well-resourced, those who are, you know, not the best or don't have the best equipment can actually surmount the ones who are better equipped, better resourced. And which is why we're going to root for the Gryffindors against the Slytherins, among other reasons. <laughs> right? <laughs> but because we also want, we want it to be true in the world that money isn't the difference. That yeah. just hard work and commitment and resolve and maybe even natural talent, which is just as unfair, it can, can surmount resources. You know, when, when the underdog wins one out of ten times, we remember that one time more than the other nine because it confirms this belief, which is often frustrated, that hard work is what matters most. Matt, we're going to do Lectio Divina again this week. What sentence do you think we should do? Uh, I just, I looked at the page I had open, Vanessa, and this is what we're doing, if that's okay with you. (laughs) The horses galloped into the middle of the dance floor and halted, rearing and plunging. Oh my God, that's amazing. So this is from the Death Day Party, right? It's absolutely from the Death Day Party. Yes. So this is, oh, this is the Headless Horseman. The Headless Hunt shows Uh. up and, and crashes the party and they take over the dance floor and they halt rearing and plunging, which is a good sentence, I think. Like, because rearing and plunging are opposite things, but they're doing both things. It's like you can get a sense of the horses, like, dancing. The horses are dancing on the dance floor. Yeah. And it says the horses, but it's the horsemen who are doing this, right? It's not like the horses are like, do you know what? We're exhibitionists. We're going to go into the middle of the dance floor. It's the headless hunt. I think the line is blurry because the they are on horseback. The Headless Hunt are on horseback, and it wouldn't make sense for the horsemen to be rearing and plunging. It must be the horses upon which they sit which are rearing and plunging, which is a really dramatic image. 
I'm just saying that it is the horsemen directing the horses to do that. It's not like these oh, yes. are horses who are like, we're going to go in the middle of the dance floor. I we love attention. So. I think so. But I also, in my head, like these horses are a little bit bro and show off like the headless hunt and they are out there. Like I see them. <laughs> I see that honestly, like this is a joke, like in my head, like I see the horses are really owning this. Like they've been doing this for hundreds of years. They've all been dead for hundreds yeah. of years. This is the most fun you can have as a ghost horse, as a ghost horse, horse ghost, as a ghost horse, ghost horse, horse. you know, like at the end of the Kentucky Derby, whatever, like the horse that won, it kind of seems like it knows it like it seems, (laughs) I don't, I see that. Right. Or like at at the Westminster dog show, the dogs that won, you can see that they are like, I feel like the, these horses, he's horse ghosts, ghost horses. They have been doing this for hundreds of years. They know that this is a, a thing. They know that they are the center of attention. They're good at it. They are rearing and plunging like the best of them. Okay, so step two is what else does this remind us of? The horses galloped into the middle of the dance floor and halted, rearing and plunging. What I think of is like Saturday Night Fever and John Travolta. Like, honestly, oh, yeah. like I think about like sort of like taking over the dance floor and these horses, like with the confidence of Travolta in that movie, and sort of the Bee Gees, like, playing in the background. I see these horses rearing and plunging. I mean, it's it's like a disco scene. It's a The dance floor scene, I imagine, is not, like, contemporary or early aughts or late 90s. It is, like, late 70s, early 80s, midst of disco scene. Or John Travolta in Greece, where, like, it becomes about the spotlight, not about Ooh. his partner. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah. Like Sandy gets replaced and he's like, whatever, I'm just in the spotlight and that's all that matters. Yeah. 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 Well, it obviously reminds me of my favorite disco movie, which is Mamma Mia and Donna and the Dynamos coming onto stage and like making themselves simultaneously making themselves the center of Sophie's party but also like being in on the joke, like they're middle-aged women who are like dressed in clothes that don't fit them anymore. And they are using their performance to celebrate Sophie, not to make it about themselves in a way that I think is really beautiful. And is sort of the antithesis of what these horses are up to, right? Yeah. There is a version of this that's like, it's your f- 500th death day. We're going to put on a performance yeah. for you, right? Like when a bridal party dances for the bride and groom. Yeah. Like there are ways to make yourself the center of attention in service of others. Yeah. And like that is not what the horses are doing here. Yeah. It's funny how like how minor that distinction is, but how important it is. Yeah. Which reminds me, I mean, that moves us to step three, maybe. Perfect. This sentence reminds me of something that I recently participated in, which is I went to a wedding of a dear friend who I love very much, and there were a lot of toasts at the wedding. And some of the toasts were amazing celebrations of the couples, and some of the toasts were about the toast giver. Mm -hmm. And like... Those are just really hard toasts to watch, right? Like, you're just like, you're missing the point of the wedding. I have so few feelings during beautiful toasts. It's like only love. And like, I laugh and I cry and it's just like full of love. And as soon as a toast becomes about the toast giver rather than the toasty, I get like mad and I get embarrassed for the person. And I, right, like there are just so many feelings, frustrated. I'm like, you didn't get the memo as to what this is supposed to be. I usually get embarrassed for the person. I think the person always wants to give a good toast. I think the person, I think all, like many of us, myself included, like we, when we don't know what to say, we talk about ourselves, right? And so that's (laughs) probably what happens. Yeah. No, I, that is my primary feeling. But then I also get mad at them for making me feel bad for them. I, it's a yeah. lot of feelings. Yeah. It's a lot of feelings. So, Matt, what does this sentence remind you of in your own life? The horses galloped into the middle of the dance floor and halted, rearing and plunging. This reminds me of my youngest son, Danny, who, like, anytime anything happens in the house, like, Danny needs to corroborate that he's in on it, too, and that actually he is important, <laughs> right? So, like... So, like, if I say to Sam, oh, that's a really good drawing, Sam. Danny, from the other room, will call out, Dad, did you like my drawing, too? And I'll say, yes, Danny, I liked your drawing also. 
or um, or if Sam, if, Mil, if Camilla is doing her math homework, and I'm like, hey, that's that's good. I like the way you you worked hard on that math problem and stuck with it. Danielle, see, like, Dad, do you like the way I stick with math problems too? Like, whatever we're talking about, he's gonna chime in and let me know that he also has whatever virtue I have commended in other children. So that reminds me of Danny. Danny is like a ghost horse. He he comes in plunging and rearing, regardless of the situation. I love him. Well, Matt, step four, what does this make you feel called to? I think what this passage calls me to is to pay better attention to those moments when I may be plunging and rearing and not recognizing that I am taking up too much space, right? Like, I have a lot of privilege in this world. I know that's true. And I, I have... Like, literally, not metaphorically, I have a pulpit and a podium. Like, my job <laughs> means I am lifted up and asked to speak for others. And it also means that when in the company of others, people often look to me or invite me to speak first. And I just, I think it calls me to just pay attention to who's not speaking and, and to lift up other voices and to make sure there is room on this dance floor for all of us, ghost horse or not, to plunge and rear. Vanessa, what does it call you to do? You know what, Matt? I'm going to fixate on the word halted. This is like a theme of something I've been working on in my life, which is to pause. I think that even when I'm in the middle of something, it's okay to pause, right? Like I've been pausing more in my emails and really making sure that like my gratitude is coming through and pausing in, you know, just my responses to people. And I feel like it is making me kinder these pauses. And I think sometimes I feel like, oh, I'm halfway through this conversation. I can't pause. And I think actually, if you say to people, hang on, can I have a minute? Like people, people will give you a minute. And so it's just something I've been thinking about a lot lately. That's great. Thanks, Vanessa, for leading us on such a, a great study of that line from the chapter. Thank you for picking such a great line, Matt. Well, Matt, it's now time for us to listen to our voicemail. And this week's voicemail is from Emma. Hi, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. My name is Emma, and I live in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm a big fan of your podcast, and it has meant a lot to me, especially during the pandemic when I've been um, at home with two young children and um, have been able to escape on walks in the evenings, and y'all are always good walking buddies. Um, I had something I wanted to point out or I guess talk about I just listened to the latest episode with Jolie when she was talking about how she hopes that uh, Harry and Dudley are able to get past the terrible example of abuse and ill treatment that Dudley's parents have set for him um, and about how, you know, she thinks in another life when uh, Petunia and Vernon were good role models, maybe they could have been friends and companions to each other. And then I was thinking about, in Chapter 1 of this book, The Chamber of Secrets, Dudley actually remembers that it's Harry's birthday. Um, I don't know whether his parents do. I don't think they ever mention it, if they do. But Dudley knows that it's Harry's birthday. And it just makes me wonder, even though he uses that knowledge to mock Harry, um, it just makes me wonder if he is paying a little bit more attention to Harry than we might have thought in the beginning. And he clearly has taken notice and memorized his birthday and recognized the date, which I find kind of impressive for someone who's portrayed as um, self-involved as Dudley is. Anyway, so it just made me wonder if perhaps Dudley is a little bit more aware of Harry and maybe a little bit more thoughtful than his parents already. Um, anyway, just a thought. Thank you so much for this beautiful podcast. I hope you all have a great day. Bye-bye. Thank you, Emma, for this this voicemail and for thinking about Dudley this way. I think you're right. I think it's clear to me throughout the whole series that Rowling has no confidence in the goodness of adults and a lot of confidence in the goodness of children, even children who are in a bad place and doing mean things like we see moments of Dudley and Draco we see that there's more to them there's still something in them there's still a goodness in them that can operate in the world and that adults around them are trying to stifle but you know there are these moments with Dudley and Draco throughout which even though we dislike them even though we resent them 
I think Rowling wants to suggest that there's still something else in them. And we don't always see that of certain adult characters in the series. And so I think you're right that Dudley is paying attention to Harry in a way that's different from his parents. And also, I think that Dudley knows that he is, although the privileged child in this house, also doesn't have great parents um, and knows that they're not really equipped to handle the situation they have and knows that everyone at his school is cruel. That emerges more and more as the series goes on. So I, I think you're right to catch that in this early in the series in this book. And yeah, thanks for bringing it to our attention. Emma, the other thing I think that you're so wise to point to is this idea that even when attention is being paid poorly, like it indicates care, right? So like Dudley cares enough about Harry's existence, even if he cares in a negative way, to know about his birthday, What definitely does not exist between Dudley and Harry is indifference, right? Like they know sort of everything about each other. And sometimes I think that that is a better way, even if it's a dislike, that more easily glides into care than utter indifference. So thank you so much for that great voicemail. Now is the time on the podcast when we remember those members of our community who have been recently lost. Jessica Nerona, who was nine, and precious, sweet, thoughtful, a loyal friend. Don McClelland, 56, truly the life of every poolside cookout party, and a birthday twin. Abel Wang, 49, a bonus dad and a literal rock star. Al Bustler, 88, a grandfather, photographer, and neighborhood handyman. Flo Marazia, 52, a second mother and a role model. And Bernice, 96, a world traveler, teacher, and beloved grandmother. May light perpetual shine upon them. Vanessa, now it's time for us to bless. Who would you like to bless this week? I want to bless Madame Pomfrey, who is just like going around and curing the common cold. We do not believe in the muggle world that there is a cure for the common cold, but Pomfrey is like, yeah, there is. Like, so it requires you to steam a little from your ear. But she is like ending a little virus epidemic at the school. Just a blessing for all healthcare workers in times of epidemics and in times of non-epidemics. You make our lives better. So a blessing for Madame Pomfrey. What about you, Matt? Oh, there are so many options <laughs> with this. So many people, as we discussed in our conversation, who are who are excluded. But I guess I'll go with my original. This is what I wrote down in my notes as I was reading. I, I want to bless Nick. In this episode, in this conversation, I talked about how his the trauma of his exclusion is different than the years of Filch being assigned the role of Squib at Hogwarts. But also Nick had, whatever, 40-something axe strikes against his neck, <laughs> right? He died a really awful death and still has like this goodness in him where in the midst of his disappointment, he wants to be kind to Harry and reach out to Harry and helps him in a real practical way, sends Peeves to interrupt Harry's punishment. So blessing for lots of folks in this chapter this week, but the one I'll name is is nearly headless Nick. Vanessa, next week we are going to be reading chapter nine of book two, The Writing on the Wall. And I think we are going to be reading through a theme I suggested last week, hate. The theme is hate. And I have to tell a story about hate. That's right, Matt. I am here to make your dreams come true. You want to talk about hate? We're going to talk about hate. Well, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. We are a Not Sorry production, which is a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman, and we are edited and produced by AJ Yaramas. Our engineer is Erica Wong. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by Acast. 
We'd like to thank Emma for their great voicemail this week, Laura Glass, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Turkile, Stephanie Paulsell, and of course, everyone who sent in the names of their loved ones. It's always verbatim. It's always like, Dad, you like the way I, I work hard at math problems and persevere also? <laughs> it's always like, the language is always... <laughs> he doesn't even know what I'm saying. It's like, I just, yeah. I, I want in on that compliment. <laughs> this week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.